everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish. And I'm Maddie. And we have to let our <laughs> listeners know this episode, Maddie has had some dental work done. So yes. It, so if she sounds a little different, it's because half the side of her face is numb. Completely. My tongue is all swollen and will feel swollen. It's not swollen. It's just the Novocaine. Right. She's a trooper, though. She's here. And we're here with you with season three, episode one. Woo-hoo. See, I had to spice it up a little bit for season three. I would expect nothing less. <laughs> <laughs> Except dental surgery on the day we're going to record. Okay. It was supposed to be Monday. It was supposed to be another day. And then it ends up being today. So... We'll make, we'll make it work. So thank you, everybody that stuck with us for these last two going on three years. We really appreciate it. We love the reach outs you give us through the website or through Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. So mm-hmm. we're getting new listeners all the time. So thank you so much. So this episode we're doing today is actually a case suggestion from one of our listeners from Pennsylvania. Go PA. Go PA, home state. So this case takes place in Luthersburg, Pennsylvania, which is located south of a smallish city of Du Bois, which is located in Clearfield County. Founded in 1804, Clearfield County is a rural farming community whose main industry, besides farming, back then, as it is today, is coal mining. So is this uh, like north of us? Yes. So kind of where it would be like north left-ish area. So if you're trying to figure out where we're from, we're from South Central (laughs) Pennsylvania. So originally this area held an Indian village by the name of Chinkalakamus. And if I mispronounce that to our First Nations individuals, I apologize. But in 1797, Daniel Ogden settled in the area and is known as the first white settler to do so. Now, a famous incident known as the Bloody Knox Cabin occurred in 1864. That's when a Union Army deserter named Tom Adams fled the army and went to a rented cabin in Knox Township. So Tom Adams decided to throw a party at the cabin, and he invited other deserters to attend. Maybe not the smartest move. When Union soldiers arrived, Adams was shot in the melee. Another Union soldier was killed. So the shootout ended with Adams dead and the other remaining deserters being rounded up. That's one of the famous incidents in these areas. (laughs) So our story starts the afternoon of April 28th, 1966. Of course, because it's Trisha's episode. Correct. You know, my 60s and 70s. And this was a gray, drizzly day when 18-year-old Pamela Sue Rimmer got off her school bus and headed home. However, she would never make it. Pamela's body would be found about a quarter of a mile from her home in a wooded area lying face down amongst the mud and leaves. She was found with one of her stockings tied around her neck and one of her sneakers that was found under her body. Otherwise, Pamela was fully clothed, but her skirt had been twisted about. She had been beaten raped, strangled, and her throat cut. Her body was found later that night, not far from her home. So when she failed to show, of course, this was totally out of the norm. They began a search party, but they didn't find her till later in the evening. Authorities began to question nearby residents to see if they had seen or heard anything that afternoon. Two witnesses would report seeing the same vehicle, a station wagon, very popular in the 60s and 70s, my dad had one, in the area where Pamela's body was found. One witness told authorities that they had seen the car pass by their home headed towards where Pamela was found, then pass again heading in the opposite direction at a high rate of speed. 
Pennsylvania state troopers would find out that the description of the vehicle matched one that was owned by John Yont, a local high school teacher. This information was obtained around 2 a.m. on April 29th, and authorities would have most likely have tracked down Yont had he not come to them first. So Pamela Sue Rimmer was the oldest of two children born to Doug and LaVon Rimmer. Pamela had one younger brother, Doug Jr., who had tragically died in a farming accident when he was 10 years old in 1963. Apparently, the tractor, he was near the barn and the tractor moved forward and crushed him in one article. Oh, gosh. Tragic farming accident. Pamela was an honors student and a senior at Du Bois Area High School. She was a member of 4-H Club and played the clarinet in the marching band. She had been accepted to Penn State University and planned to attend that coming fall on a scholarship. So Pamela was smart. She was a very intelligent young woman. She was the only female student in a class of nine to take the advanced mathematics class, and John Yant was her teacher. Now, while Pennsylvania state troopers were continuing their investigation at the scene, 28-year-old John Yon entered the state police substation in Du Bois around 5.45 a.m. on April 29th. So he rang the bell and the trooper on duty who had come to the door and the troopers asking, what can I do for you? And John says, quote, I'm the man you're looking for. Unquote. So the trooper was kind of like, I'm not sure what you're referring to. What are you referencing, sir? Yeah. Yeah. So when asked what he was referring to, John Yacht replied, the incident in Luthersburg. So the officer was unaware of any connection between, again, this man at the door and what was going on in the murder investigation because different trooper barracks handled different calls. So the officer on duty invited him in, asked him to take a seat, and he went back to the back to wake up the detective who was on duty and another trooper and kind of filled them in on what was going on. And so the detective came out and the man introduced himself as John Yant. Yant handed over his wallet and a copy of his driver's license was taken. He was read his rights to the right to remain silent, and that anything he could be used against him in a court of law. Now keep in mind, Miranda versus Arizona was in the process of being heard by the Supreme Court at this time. So it was not the law of the land Mm -hmm. as of yet. Well, and we just had a case recently where they hadn't Mirandized, but it was before Miranda rights, Mm -hmm. and they had still tried to appeal based on the fact that the Miranda rights hadn't been read. So this was a good move on the police's part to to do that ahead of the decision even being made. One would think... We'll see how this rolls out. So the following is a conversation that had taken place that I found in Yant's 1974 appeal. I'm going to have you read the detective part and I'll read the Yant part. Okay. Why are we looking for you? I killed that girl. What girl? Pamela Rimmer. How did you kill this girl? I hit her with a wrench and choked her. Okay, that was it. (laughs) That was the only... (laughs) This is the end of Trish and Maddie Playtime. That's correct. So Yant went on to say that he had been driving in the area looking at properties when he saw Pamela Rimmer walking home after being dropped off by her school bus. So he stopped and offered her a ride. Now, it was during that ride, Yant claimed that he made an innocent comment that Pamela took the wrong way. Pamela then tried to leave Yant's vehicle, claiming that she was going to tell people about him. He then grabbed her by her coat to prevent her from leaving. Yant then stated he didn't recall much after that, but did say that he struck her with a wrench and strangled her. He made no mention of stabbing her or sexually assaulting her. So at that point, Yant was arrested So Pamela's autopsy revealed that she had numerous wounds on her head, which looked to have been caused by a blunt instrument, a.k.a. the wrench. She had blood all over the majority of her outer clothing, but little was found on her undergarments. The blood looked to have come from wounds to her head and neck. 
Pamela also had cuts to her fingers, indicating defensive wounds. She also had three slash marks across her neck. Now, on initial review, the physician performing Pamela's autopsy didn't see any indication of her being sexually assaulted. There was no injury to her genital area and her hymen was intact. Now, as is a matter of routine, a vaginal aspiration test is performed and the results showed a quantity of disintegrated sperm in Pamela's vaginal tract. And that's why the rape charge. Mm-hmm. was added. So ultimately, Pamela's cause of death was strangulation along with blood loss. So Johnny Yank graduated from Penn State University in 1958 with a degree in mathematics. Yant was married and had two children at the time of his arrest. So John Yant went to trial on September 28, 1966. His trial would last nine days. Yant's defense team attempted to have his confessions thrown out before the trial, claiming that his Miranda rights had been violated. They contend that he was only told he had the right to remain silent, but nothing was said to him about his right to an attorney, or if he could not afford one, one would be provided for him. The court declined to throw out Yant's confession and the trial proceeded. Now, Yant was found guilty of rape and first-degree murder on October 7, 1966, and the jury recommended life imprisonment. So you would think that would be the end of the story. You would think this is going to be a really short podcast episode. Correct. (laughs) Ten minutes or less. But it's not. Yance appealed his conviction because his constitutional rights had been violated and the court erred in allowing his confession to stand at trial. Now, his direct appeal would be heard by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, who would rule in favor of Yant citing that the Commonwealth had failed to give all the warnings necessitated by Miranda, even though it hadn't been decided upon the time of his arrest. I know, it's hard to wrap your mind around that. So even though Yonk confessed before Miranda versus Arizona was decided, by the time he was on trial, Miranda had been decided. So the admissibility of his confession should have been viewed through the lens of Miranda. So what the police did wasn't necessarily wrong in the rights they read him. Mm -hmm. But when he came to trial, since Miranda was already in place, the judge should have not allowed the confession. I don't agree with it, but... I'm not a judge in 1966. That is correct. So the Commonwealth, for their part, argued that Jan's confession was voluntary because he showed up at their door and that they were not required to tell him to his right to free counsel because they felt he could afford one based upon his profession. He was a high school math teacher. The court felt that was an error to assume what Jan could or could not afford. They also felt that even though he voluntarily came into the barracks and admitted to killing Pamela, once authorities started asking him questions, all the Miranda warnings were necessary. So Yant was granted a new trial. So Yant went on trial for a second time in November 1970. So this time, the rape charge was admitted, as was his confession. So I felt they they felt they had a stronger case without that. Mm -hmm. However, there was enough evidence gathered through the investigation that in the end, Yant was convicted for a second time and sentenced to life imprisonment. Do we know what evidence they had against him? Did they have any physical evidence or? Well, I think they had the wrench. I think Mm -hmm. stuff found in his vehicle, you know, tied him to that crime. Mm -hmm. The eyewitnesses seeing his car, because you got to understand this was a rural community. Yeah, it's not like you have a bunch of traffic going through or anything like that. And people kind of know everyone. So they were, there were at least two witnesses that were able to identify that car and knew who that car belonged to. Mm -hmm. So I think that type of evidence led to his conviction. So by all accounts, Yant was a model prisoner for 20 years. He played the organ in the prison choir. 
He taught other prisoners and even worked as a jailhouse lawyer. Yant had been transferred even to Camp Hill State Correctional Institution for a time for computer programming classes. It was during his time at Camp Hill that he met Diane Broadbeck, a 43 mother of two. Broadbeck lived in Wellsville, Pennsylvania with her husband, Chester. She was actively involved in her church and it was through her church and the Lutheran Social Services Program that she took over writing to prisoner Yon in 1982. So I think somebody else had been corresponding with them. And this was a program that was like a pen pal program for mm-hmm. prisoners that really didn't have any family connections. So I don't know. I could find nothing regarding Yon's family of origin, or I'm assuming his wife divorced him and the kids and maybe moved, you know. So, but it didn't sound like he had any correspondence with anybody else besides through this program. So a friend of Diane's had been writing Yon, and then she asked Broadbeck to take over because she could no longer do it. And writing soon turned into visits. After Yon had been transferred back to Rockview State Correctional Institution in Center County, which is where Penn State is located, Broadbeck can continued to visit him weekly, even though it was a two-hour drive one way. One way. Keep in mind, they didn't have the major highway then. She would visit for four hours with guards thinking that she was actually Yon's girlfriend based upon all the kissing and hugging that was going on. So over the following years, Yon attempted to have his conviction overturned with little success. The United States Supreme Court finally decided not to hear Yant's final appeal. In February of 1985, Yant wrote Broadbeck telling her that he was in love with her. And not being able to be behind bars, he was thinking of escaping. So on April 5, 1986, Yant was taken out to the agricultural fields outside of the prison walls to work on cutting down some hay, and this was around 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Again, he had earned these privileges by being a model prisoner, and at Rockville at the time, I don't know if it is the same today, they had an agricultural farm around the prison. So this area was approximately one mile from the prison. Yant was to be the only one working that day in the field with no supervision. Prison officials didn't know that Broadbeck picked Yon up on a nearby road and took off. And Yant was not discovered missing until 3.30 that afternoon. Whoops up. <laughs> so when it was discovered that Yant was on the run, Walter Regal, an off-duty prison guard who knew Broadback, came forward to report he had seen her driving near the prison around 1.45 the day of the escape. So he was, I think, driving in town and he recognized Broadback from being in the prison when she visited. Mm -hmm. That's how they kind of clued into who helped him escape. Which you would think that if he saw her at, well, if, what time, do you know what time she actually picked him up? He was off, this prison guard was off duty. He passed her near the site where Yant was working around 145. Okay. So I would imagine right around that time. Pennsylvania State Police were notified and the investigation commenced, but there was little success as the couple appeared to have vanished. Broadbeck's husband, Chester, whom she had been married to for the past 25 years, was questioned when authorities realized she played a role in Yon's escape. Chester told authorities that he thought his wife was going to Williamsburg, Virginia for the weekend. By herself? Well, maybe with a church group or some girlfriends. Oh, that's that's right. The church group. Right. It was also discovered that in the weeks before the escape, Broadbeck had opened a secret bank account in which she transferred $7,410 from an account that held about $7,500. She had also placed a light blue car in a storage facility in the Harrisburg area two weeks prior. Authorities also discovered that the night before the escape, the two had talked on the phone for about 14 minutes. 
Diane Broadbeck was charged as an accessory in Yon's escape. A month after Yon's escape, authorities found Broadbeck's car abandoned at a motel about 20 miles from her home. Now, inside the trunk, a bag containing her jewelry, cosmetics, and underwear were found. Pennsylvania State Trooper Raymond Madden, who worked on tracking down Yon and Broadbeck, had two theories as to what this could mean for Broadbeck's safety. One was that Yon had manipulated her and used her to escape, and after she served her usefulness, he disposed of her. The second theory was that the two had fallen in love and were now living together somewhere else under aliases. But it's odd that she would leave a bag behind in the car. Mm -hmm. Well, that's why they thought foul play. Mm -hmm. Broadbeck's family had another theory, and they believed that she was still alive. He didn't dispose of her, but she was being held against her will. So for over two years, there were no signs of John Yant nor Diane Broadbeck. Tips were followed up on saying the couple had been spotted in Maryland, State College area, and even Montreal, but nothing panned out. It's as if they disappeared off the face of the earth. And it would have remained that way had it not been for an episode of Unsolved Mysteries that aired in May 1988. The episode segment outlined John Yacht's crime and escape from Rockview State Correctional Institution. Pictures of Yacht and Broadbeck were shown, and soon after the episode aired, tips started pouring in. Mm-hmm. I believe I put a link in the show notes because you can find that episode on YouTube. I think that's where I found it. Is America's Most Wanted still on? I don't know. I don't, not with Adam Walsh, but it, it may be. I know they revive them every now and then. Don Humphreys of Curdaline, Idaho, a town outside of Boise, called in to report that he knew Diane Broadbeck. Only he knew her as Mary Catherine Kermit when they both worked together for a lawn maintenance service. John Yacht had apparently been living under the name of Jim Forsgren and had worked for a time as a computer programmer. So in June 1988, both Broadbeck and Yacht were arrested and extradited back to Center County, Pennsylvania. Now, at the time of their arrest, Broadbeck had been working as, I read one article, as a chimney sweep or a bank manager. So I don't know if she moved. I mean, that's really far apart. It seems like an odd job for like the middle of Idaho. Chimney sweep? Does it not? No, I think they have chimneys in Idaho. It just seemed weird that I read one article, chimney sweep, and another article said bank manager. <laughs> I'm like, I could see her more as a bank manager, but well, and it surprises me that they weren't. So they were, they weren't even living like as if they were married or something. Um, not with the same no, because they didn't have the same yeah. last name. But the other article I read said John Yon had been unemployed at the time of the arrest. But from what I read, they were really a well liked couple. I mean, they didn't go out and be flashy or anything like that. They just kind of were normal. But he apparently did a lot of things in the community. And so people liked him, never knowing, you know, they were on the run and what he had done. On September 1st, 1988, Broadbeck's family posted a $250,000 property bail for her release. In December 1988, Broadbeck pleaded guilty to criminal conspiracy in a plea deal with then-Center County District Attorney Ray Grykar. After he withdrew the hindering prosecution, aiding in the consumption of a crime and escape charges for her plea, Broadbeck faced up to a $15,000 fine and up to seven years in prison. So if the name Ray Grykar seems familiar, it's because I mentioned him in our previous episode involving James Robert Cruz Jr., Ray Grykar carries a mystery of his own since he disappeared in 2005 without a trace. And as of today, Ray Grykar is still considered a missing person. You got to talk about that. He just like vanished? Yeah. From where? Center County. But I mean, like, was he like going to work or coming? You no, know? he was off for the day, took off, went and drove to a nearby town and went to an antique mall and then just disappeared. His car was found, I think, 
Months or years later, his laptop computer was found in a nearby creek, but that's it. There's never been any sighting of him. So if you want to know a little more about that, listen to the James Robert Cruz Jr. episode. So it was related in court that the couple had traveled to Idaho after their escape and rented a basement apartment in Dalton Gardens, which is a suburb of Coeur d'Alene. They had used fake social security numbers and birth certificates. Now, the couple's landlord, Patty Meyer, gave an interview in which she told reporters that she believed the couple to be in love and had even had a conversation with Broadbeck slash Kerman, where she told her so. Broadbeck ended up serving two years in prison for her help in Yance's escape. Her Broadbeck's attorney, Terrence McGowan, Diane knows that she made a mistake, that at the time she got involved with Yance, she was going through a difficult period in her life. Both of her children were grown, and she felt that she wasn't really needed anymore, kind of lost. That empty nest syndrome is what it sounds like. Her home life also felt lacking. So when Yance gave her the attention that she was missing, it helped fill that void. Her attorneys also claimed that Broadbeck knew little about what got Jan sentenced to prison and that Jan had played upon Broadbeck's feelings of emptiness and manipulated her. Now, at some point, I think if I'm going to help somebody escape from prison, though, I want to know what they're in prison for. She didn't know what he was in prison for? Doesn't She knew little about what got him to prison, according to the article I read, according to what her attorney said. I feel like that would be like my first question. Right. Or I'd ask also the guards up there, like, What's his charges? Because this is pre-Google. You couldn't just get on a site to kind of look up some things. I don't know. If I'm driving like two hours a week to go see this person, I feel like I would even go to like the courthouse and get some court records or something. Yeah. Come on, Diane, do your research on your prisoner boyfriend. You didn't. Should that be our criminal discourse life tip? Yes. If you're dating a prisoner, know what they're in prison for? Well, yes. And if you're thinking of helping them escape, yeah. Don't. Don't. <laughs> Hashtag don't do that and find out what they're in prison for. Yant received an additional three to seven years to his sentence, which is a life sentence, after pleading guilty to escape. Now, upon his return to prison, Yant once again worked as a jailhouse lawyer, this time focusing on voting rights. He was one of the first to notice how the Pennsylvania Census Bureau was miscounting prisoners so that it could distort redistricting for state officials. He also brought a lawsuit against T net a telephone company for abusive telephone rates and billing practices against inmates in which he won refunds for the year of 2008. He's a very smart guy. He was a murderer, but he's a very smart guy. Now, since his original conviction, Jan attempted numerous times to seek relief. He felt that he should have never been charged with first degree murder, only second degree, as he claimed his crime was not premeditated. Pamela's mother, however, disagrees with that. And she worked just as hard to keep him behind bars. And we've heard those stories before of family members. I think of Lori Show's mom, mm-hmm. you know, those family members that worked tirelessly to get laws changed to harsher sentences and, and work tirelessly to keep them behind bars so that they do not get parole. LaVon Rimmer believed that her daughter had been targeted by Yant. In interviews, she told reporters that her daughter had asked if she could be moved out of Yant's class. Pamela told her mother, Quote, oh, mom, you should see his eyes, unquote. Pamela had also allegedly told her mother that she had seen Yant driving by their house on several afternoons leading up to the murder. LaVon believed that Yant had waited for Pamela to get off the bus, catching her alone on the deserted road. Somehow he convinced her to get into his car, whether manipulating her or forcing her. When Pamela was unable to escape his car, her mother believed that she was trying to cut through the woods to reach the main road when Jan had caught up with her. Now, LaVon Rimmer passed away in 2010, and up to that time, she worked again, keeping him behind bars, facilitating petition drives, 
talking to politicians, writing to politicians, and attending every parole hearing. So as previously, Yant continued to be a model prisoner, but no closer to the relief he sought from his conviction. And on April 26, 2012, John Yant took his own life in his cell, 46 years and two days shy of the anniversary of Pamela Rimmer's murder. And that is the story of Pamela Rimmer. That's a good case. It was an interesting case. It really was. It was a good case suggestion. It's one I hadn't heard before. So if you have a case suggestion for us, please feel free to reach out to us. You can do so through a couple of means. You can, of course, go to our website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On there, you will find all of our show notes and our resources we use to bring you our episodes. Again, our notes are just that. We're not professional paid journalists. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you can also reach out to us through our Facebook page, Criminal Discourse Podcast, our Instagram page at Criminal Dis Pod, and our YouTube channel. We have some snippets of sneak peeks on the YouTube channel and some full episodes out there. Uh, Butch DeFeo is one, Kendall Francois is the other. I don't know if a third one's been released or not. Oh, crime news. Great. So Rodney Akala died. Oh, did he? Yeah, died in prison. I don't know what the cause is. I'm assuming natural. He was kind of up there in age. But yeah, he passed away the other week. So if anyone wants to hear about his case. One of the earlier episodes we did in season one, Rodney mm-hmm. Akala, the dating game serial killer. So he killed in California and New York State, mm-hmm. I believe are two of the main states that he committed murders in. So once again, thank you everybody for listening and sticking with us. We're excited for season three. There's a big deep dive case I'm working on right now, Matt can attest to that with all my notes. It's been what, like a month now you've been working on this? Yes. I've watched two documentaries, read a book, and now I'm reading. And it's not a, it's a foreign case. So yeah, so we're working on that. That hopefully will come up at some point in season three. I don't know when I'll be done with it all. So we really do appreciate when you reach out to us and give us those case suggestions because we've had over the past two years, a lot of good ones. Mm -hmm. So again, thank you so much. And hey, we would ask, you know, reach out to us. Let us know where you're from. Introduce yourselves to us. Even if you don't have a case suggestion, we love hearing from people. And in fact, we had a reach out from Linda H. She reached out through our website and who had come across us, you know. People stumble and find us. <laughs> God knows we don't have a marketing plan. <laughs> That's and she loves what we do. So thank you, Linda. And she listens to us on iHeartRadio. She actually has uh, an interesting story for us about two daughters killing their father, which I thought, ooh, I can't wait. So hopefully she reaches back out and gets us that information. And also a special thank you to Mark, who reached out to us, letting us know that on our website under the Jeffrey McDonald case, the Fort Bragg sign that we had up was actually Fort Bragg, California, not Fort Bragg, North Carolina. He's the first one to know. I have, if you need another Fort Bragg, I have one from when we drove on vacation last year. Oh, that'd be great. And I took a picture to send to you. Oh. Yeah, that'd be great. I think we've changed it. We found one. But yeah, we can use that one, too. So thank you, Mark. You you were the first one. If we had any prizes or swag to give, you'd get it for (laughs) letting us know our mistake because we do make mistakes. All right, everyone. So as always, we already gave you our criminal discourse life tip. Make sure you know who you're writing in prison and what they're in there for Mm -hmm. and don't help them escape. There you go. So we want you all to stay safe out there. You know, we unfortunately in the United States, we have some resurgence of the the COVID. So we hope you're all taking precautions and staying safe. But also remember in these crazy times, we also need to be kind to one another and look out for one another. So until next time, guys. Bye. Bye.